Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. Uh, last Sunday, I kind of left us on a little bit of a cliffhanger. Um, last week, we started a very short message series called Love and Discernment, and I covered the topic of love as a Christian virtue last week, and then I told you that we would cover the topic of discernment this week. So in order to really understand how these two things work together, I need to give just a quick recap of last week before we get into this week. Um, and the conversation about discernment. Last week, the big idea that we kind of wrestled with was this concept that John tells us in 2 John that love is walking in his commandments. That's what he tells us in 2 John. Uh, he says it in verse six. And that kind of blows uh, it, it's just kind of like, uh, when I was a kid, that was a commercial that used to come on uh, for this game, Battleship. You guys remember that? And there was these two kids, and one had like a flat top, and one had like a mohawk, and they were like really into it, and they're playing Battleship, and then the commercial always ended with this one kid like slamming his hands down. He's like, Battleship sunk! And the other kid's like, man, you got me. That's how I feel when I'm confronted with things like that in Scripture. Because we grow up with these ideas of what love is. We're, we're convinced that it is an overflow or it's an expression or it's an emotion or it's a posture, it's how you feel. And then we look at the word of God and John tells us in chapter six, this is love that you walk according to his commandments and battleships sunk. <laughs> because you can't wrestle with that. You're just like, okay, I have to now make a decision. Do I want to continue functioning and living my life off of my previous definition of love, or do I want to change that definition because of what the Word of God tells me love is? Because I believe that there is a God who created the universe, and He defined everything in the world. He created me, He created this world, He set the rules, He defines stuff. So when He says things are this way, I can keep lying to myself and say, well, no, no, they're this way. Or I can say, all right, I trust you. Things are this way. And love is one of those things. Love, and He's talking about primarily within the context of church not towards non-believers or people out in the world. He's talking about us, Christian folk. We are to look at love as walking in his commandments. Now that is important for us because it, it necessitates us knowing his commands. It means that we can't love each other unless we know what his commands are because if we don't know what they are, then we can't obey them. Which then creates another problem and that was why John wrote 2 John. These commands, and there's tons of them. And we're not talking about like the Old Testament Ten Commandments. We're talking about things that Jesus told us to do. We, I, I kind of run through a, a brief list last week, but the, but the New Testament is filled with these imperative verbs, these ideas that, like I'm, I'm telling you, like this isn't an option. If you want to follow me, this is what you have to do. If you want to follow me, you got to deny yourself. That's a command. It's a non-negotiable. You either do it or you don't do it. And so in, obey, in obeying these commands, then we learn how to love one another. 
Obeying these commands actually is love toward one another. So we have to know what these commands are, and then John introduces this concept that we have to be aware of, and he says that there are deceivers and antichrists, and that's, that's kind of one of those wild words, but it's really just a, a word that means antichrist. Concepts that are the opposite of what Christ taught. So Christ said this, and someone's like, no, the opposite of that. There are deceivers and there are antichrists that want to challenge the commands. They want to challenge the commands. They want to rewrite the commands. They want to erase the commands. And what's happening in the first century church is you've got people coming into the church, traveling, teachers, preachers, early at the stages of the church, and they're already starting to say, hey, I know Paul came through and said this, but I'm telling you, and he was wrong. He was right on a lot of things, but he was wrong on this one thing, and this is the one thing that you have to reconsider. And so the church is like, okay, well, well, if he commanded us this, and you're saying this, then we need to obey this command. And do you see how this kind of spirals out of control? Because if love is obeying his commandments, if the enemy can come in and, and undercut the commandments so that the commandments are erased or reversed or changed, then we aren't actually following what he told us to do and therefore we can't love. So, so what he's arguing in 2 John is that these commands that are being rewritten or erased completely are detrimental to the local church because if the commands of Jesus, the very words he spoke, get erased or rewritten, it removes your capacity and ability to love one another. Because if you can't follow what he said, you can't love. That's why deception is so important to take seriously. Because deception literally changes the love landscape in a church. We like to have these conversations when we think about, you know, we read the news or we think about denominations or we think about other churches or we wrestle with this idea of like, man, you know, I've been to that church or I visited that church or I know that church. Man, they're just a real unloving church. They're not very loving over there. And what we're saying is, well, you know, when you walk in, it's just like no one says hi to you, no one loves you, no one calls you, this or that. No one's very affectionate. And I, I give it, I'll, I'll give you that, I, I understand that. But I, I would argue that John is saying that's a symptom of a much larger problem. Because the issue isn't unloving churches are unloving because they have a tolerance problem or an acceptance problem or an affection problem. John is saying that unloving churches are unloving because they have a deception problem and an obedience problem. They're not being taught the word of God and they're not obeying the word of God. See, if they were obeying the word of God, the word of God commands us to outdo one another in honor. And so if the church is filled with a bunch of people who are trying to have a competition about outdoing one another honor, then you've got an entire church standing at the door. No one can even walk in because everyone's going, no, you first, no, you first, no, you first, no, you first, no, you first. And it's annoying for everyone to watch, but at the heart, that's really what church is about. It's about a group of people saying, I, I'm not here for me. I'm here, I'm here for you, I'm here to love you, I'm here to serve you. And in doing that, I'm filled, but I'm not here to get filled. Do you see the difference? It's little, it's subtle, but it is the difference. If you're here because this church checked off all the boxes, you won't be here in six months, I promise. 
You just won't. Because something will happen, someone will say something, it will probably be me from this stage, and you're just like, mm, those three boxes, nah, well now we're down to two, now we're down to one. So I'm just gonna go on down the road. You know what I'm talking about. But if your desire is not to go to a place of worship and be a part of a family so you can get something out of it, if your desire is to be a part of a family so that you can give into it, then we've got a whole different conversation. Then you're talking New Testament language. Because if the, if the apostles were only in it for themselves, none of them would have been martyred. None of them would have been thrown in prison or beaten or hung on a cross upside down. They weren't in it for themselves. They were in it for us, even though they had never met us. And so what John is trying to get us to understand is that there are two um, virtues that need to be alive in the church, and that is love, and that brings us to the second one, discernment. Now, why discernment? Because if deception translates to an unloving, unhealthy church, how do we prepare and not be an unhealthy and unloving church? We have to walk in discernment. Now, discernment is just a fancy word that basically means the ability to perceive right from wrong. But not just the ability to perceive right from wrong, the ability to perceive deception from immaturity. Now, all of us are like, I'll sign, yeah, I'll, I'll sign up for some right and wrong, because I love telling people what's right and wrong, because I always seem to be on the side of right, and everyone else seems to be on the side of wrong. But one conversation we rarely ever have is the difference between true deception, wolves in sheep's clothing, and people who are just young and immature. And both of, those, both of those categories, they belong under the concept of discernment because what you have is that in life there are actual deceivers, there are charlatans, there are false prophets, there are antichrists, there are legitimate people who are out to undercut and remove and rewrite and erase God's commands because they don't like his church and they want to sow any kind of division in the midst of them just so that they stop functioning. That's a thing, but there's another thing. And the other thing are people who are immature, young, uninformed, or maybe they're just Pentecostal. <laughs> Some of you are like, hey, I can say that because I grew up Pentecostal. And I love me some Pentecostal people. But here's the truth. If you're gonna run around the room with flags and bring a tambourine to service, I'm gonna pick on you just a little bit. <laughs> but I still love you. My point being, <laughs> I'm gonna get an email about that when I know it. <laughs> my, my point is that there is a difference between people who are out to close the doors of the church and people who are just young and immature and don't know any better. And discernment means I know the difference. So here's what I wanna do. I want us to really emphasize 
and read 3 John through the lens of discernment today because what he's doing is he's highlighting some guys' lives that are different in a contrast so that he can train the church how to look at discernment because the best way to grow in discernment is to examine comparisons. You need to see good, holy living and you need to see unrighteous, unholy living so that you can tell the difference and that your skills are sharpened in that. So that's what we're doing today. So if you have your Bibles, go to 3 John verses one through eight. We'll put it up on the screen for uh, if you don't have a Bible or you just want to follow along up on screen. But this is what he opens the letter with. This is John the Apostle, the guy who wrote the Gospel of John, the book of Revelation. He says, the elder, as he's referring to himself, to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. Now I'm just gonna pause right there because that's a scary prayer to pray. If God suddenly, right now, made your physical health the same level of your spiritual health, do you think you would be healthier or less healthy? That's a scary prayer to pray. But it's one to take seriously because Paul, or excuse me, John understands the value of the inner man growing at a pace that outpaces the outer man. I want your inner man to be as healthy, I want your inner man to be so healthy that your outer man looks like that. But we spend a lot of time eating a lot of supplements, using a lot of essential oils, trying to get this outside vessel looking real good, but I just wonder what that inside vessel looks like. Is it, is it a reflection? Are they at pace with one another? Verse three, for I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing that you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Okay, let's pause right there. John is writing to this one guy. He isn't writing to a church. He's writing to a specific guy. This guy's name is Gaius. And Gaius is known in the region for having a reputation for walking in the truth. And this guy is filled with joy. And he becomes an example for others to follow. His reputation is contagious. It's so contagious that a group of traveling preachers were in town at Gaius' church and Gaius went over the top to welcome them into his home, to feed them, to care for them, and to send them on the way to make sure that their needs were met. His hospitality was contagious. When these guys got back to where John was, these guys couldn't stop talking to John about how hospitable and joyful and nice and kind and loving that Gaius was. And so this example, John is saying, he's using it as an example for us to follow. Because while this letter was written to Gaius, it's written for us. 
John knew that this letter would be read by more than just one um, member of the church because these apostles, they wrote these letters and these letters got circulated all throughout the church. And so the letter was specifically to Gaius, but the letter to Gaius got handed to other folks. And as they read this, they started learning, oh man, like John's giving major kudos to Gaius for what he did. I guess that's how I should live also. That's John's end game here. He wants to use Gaius's life as an example for what it looks like to really treasure Jesus, follow him and show hospitality. So he's saying what you did and it was awesome. That's the kind of thing we need more of in churches. We need more people who go out of their way to be hospitable to one another. But not everybody is a Gaius. And that's where we get to verse nine. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. Not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. So the letter starts with this guy named Gaius, and now the letter is moved to this other guy named Diotrephes. Diotrephes likes to put himself first. He loves for everybody to see him. He loves being at the front of the line. And he doesn't acknowledge John's authority. He doesn't acknowledge the authority of a guy who spent three years camping with Jesus in the wilderness. John walked with Jesus for three years. He was the only disciple at the foot of the cross. There was a foot race on Easter morning between him and Peter to get to the tomb. John knew Jesus personally, but Diotrephes apparently doesn't respect John's authority. So John wrote a letter to the church and Diotrephes refused to pass it around. Now, what is the letter? Some think it was 1 John, some think it was a, a letter that was uh, left, but regardless of the fact of whatever um, activity Diotrephes tried to do to thwart John's uh, authority, I'd say that John has a last, had the last laugh since we're all sitting here talking about the man Diotrephes who put himself first. Could you imagine that's your legacy? You get your name in the Bible because you can't stop thinking of yourself first. This guy spread rumors and wicked talk inside the church. He was not hospitable. He was condemning and manipulative. And John is using these two guys as a comparison. And the reason why he's comparing them is because he wants to contrast their lives to teach the church about discernment. And this is where we get into verse 11. It says, beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God, and whoever does evil has not seen God. And pause right there. Because what John is saying after he's highlighted the lives of these two men, is he's saying, I want you, church, I want you to look at these two guys, because both of these guys claim to follow Jesus. Gaius says, I'm a follower of Jesus. Jesus, I'm with him, I'm totally down with him. I like all the stuff he says. 
I'm a Jesus man, I love him. But Diotrephes is saying the same thing. He's a leader in the church and he's saying, I'm a Jesus man, I follow Jesus. I'm all about Jesus. John is highlighting both of these guys and he's saying, don't imitate one of them, imitate the other because he's trying to answer that inner question that just rose inside your, your heart just now. If you've got one guy who says, follow me, I know what I'm talking about because I love Jesus. And another guy who says, follow me, I know what I'm talking about, I love Jesus, but they're not saying the same thing, who do you follow? Who do you know who to imitate? If they're both saying, I follow Jesus, but they're saying opposite things about him, who do you imitate and who do you follow? And that is where discernment comes in. So we use discernment as a way to examine the claims of one person and the claims of another person. So this is what discernment looks like. Discernment, according to what John is laying out, is he's saying, I want you to look at the life of this guy and I want you to look at the the life of this guy. And I want you to compare what you see with what you know in here. So this is the first step in discernment. Growing in your knowledge of the word as the baseline for what is true and not true and using that as a litmus test when you examine the fruit of other people. I've got this person who's saying this thing. All right, well we can all say lots of things, can't we? But is what you're saying line up with what you're doing? You got a pastor who says all these things But how do I know if he's actually following the word of God? How do I know if I can trust this guy? Well, you examine the fruit of what the Bible says comes with the life of a pastor. You talk to his wife. (laughs) You meet his children. Talk to them. Ask them what it's like to live in that guy's house. What's he like when the lights are not pointed on him? Does he control his temper or does he lose it? Is he kind with his words or does he sharpen his words and stab his family members with them? Is he Christ-like or is he a tyrant? Is he like a caveman who walks around with a club and smashes everything or is he careful and cautious? so as not to drive his children out of the house of the Lord. You say all these things, but let's examine those things in the light of what we know about this. You say you follow Jesus. You say you know a lot about the Bible. You say you've read it many times. But yet you hold these these personal opinions that when you vocalize them, I'm like, You, you do know that that's the opposite of what that says in here, right? How do you know who to imitate? How do you know who to follow? You use discernment. What is discernment? Discernment is the act of comparing the word of God against the fruit that you see in other people's life. Is what you're saying line up with what he's saying? Because if it's not, I'm not following you anywhere. So discernment, first step, 
is using the word of God to examine somebody else's fruit. And the second step in discernment is knowing when to say something about it. Because what we see here is John says, when I come in person, I'm gonna correct Diotrephes. We is gonna have some words and I'm gonna put them in his place. So there are times when correction needs to take place. That upon examination of a person's life, their fruit does not line up with what the word of God says is fruit. There needs to have some correction and, and sometimes some, some, frankly, some tough conversations. But let me just give you some pastoral counsel for that. There are boundaries for how those kinds of conversations happen. Here's my rule. Don't respond or share controversial, tough conversations or negative things in any public space. To the best of your ability, do that stuff in person. If there needs to be, follow me here, because this, this runs against the grain of everything that it is to be American, right? Mm, I don't want to do it. No, no, she said it publicly, so I'm going to respond publicly. He said that publicly, so I'm going to, uh, he, he recorded this on his podcast and he put it out, so I'm going to publicly respond. To my, this is what's in our DNA. We want to correct everybody and make sure everybody's right. But discernment says that sometimes things that need to be corrected don't need to be in a letter or on Facebook. They need to be face to face. John says, I will correct that man, but I'll do it when I get there. Because some things are best said when you're sitting across the table from somebody and you're looking into their eye and they can read more than just what you wrote on a screen and inject your words with their emotions and they read what you said incorrectly. They can hear your tone, they can see your facial expressions, they can tell that you are struggling over this, they can watch you kind of move your hands and that this is an uncomfortable conversation and this is not something that you walked into with your, your katana sword ready to just start swinging at everything and ready to make them bleed so that they hear the truth. No, no, this is a tough conversation, this isn't easy, but I love you and I feel like this needs to be said. So here's my rule and I encourage you to take it, adopt it. Any tough conversation, any correction, any negative speak that needs to be shared, doesn't have to be shared, but needs to be shared, do it in person. Schedule a lunch, schedule a coffee, go to somebody's house, do it in person. If that's impossible, if you can't do it in person, at least do it over the phone. And if you can't do it over the phone, for the love of Jesus, stop doing it in public forums online. Direct message the person. If you love somebody and you see, boom, yeesh, I don't know about that one, don't hit respond in the thread. Direct message the person and say, hey, this is probably not worth a conversation in person. Just want to share this personal information. Just, just, I love you, and we're in community, and I, lo I, I love you as a brother or sister. Just wanted to share this thought. If you want to have more conversation in person, we certainly can. 
But any tough conversations, any negative stuff, you would, you would do well to stop sharing that stuff publicly online. Do it in person. Call them, text them, direct message them, and let's stop looking like fools to the world because all of us are constantly growing and it looks like two children in the corner fighting over a toy. That's not good for the gospel. So, discernment is taking the word of God and using it in a way to examine the fruit of, of, of believers to see if what they're saying lines up with word of God. Discernment looks like saying something when we find something, but discernment also looks like not saying something when you find something. Now follow me here, because this is the one we're tough at. Sometimes, upon examination of someone's life, you're gonna see, ah, uh, they, they ain't walking the walk. They're blowing a whole lot of smoke. There's a desire inside of you to let everyone know what you found. Under the umbrella of, well, I don't want other people to be deceived. Almost like you don't really believe there's a Holy Spirit who's working to help people not be deceived. You gotta do his job better than him. And there's this inner fire inside of you to be right and to let people see you as right. And so you've got to put every wrong thing right and you've got to correct every issue that you see. Discernment says, hey, sometimes there's things that need correction and you don't need to say anything about it. You need to shut up. <laughs> and I say this because when John is writing the letter to Gaius, nowhere in this letter does he ask Gaius to correct Diotrephes. You see that? John says, I'm the guy with the relationship and the authority. I'll take care of it and I'll do it in person. And I don't want you to say anything to him. I want you to see that there's a difference and I want everyone to see that there's a difference. But I'll do the correcting and you don't need to go out of your way to do this. And the reason why this is important for us to understand under the umbrella of the discernment is because some people should correct some folks and other folks should not ever correct that person. I, I, I explained it this way. Uh, in working through the pastoral candidate process, I, I tried to kind of help the guys get this concept. Think of relationships kind of like bank accounts. In having meetings with people and, and having conversations, going out to coffee, uh, spending time with them, sharing your home with one another, breaking bread together, all of that, are, it's kind of like de making deposits into each other's account. There's this emotional account. Man, we're hanging out together, and man, it's just like, man, I'm just, I'm just depositing you. I'm just, I'm loving you. And you built up over time these deposits in each other's account. And sometimes, when you have to make a correction or a harsh word, what is required is to make a withdrawal on that deposit, on, on the, the deposits that you've been making. And if you come to a relationship and try to make a withdrawal, and you don't have enough deposits, you're going to overdraw and it's gonna ruin that relationship. And most of us, I don't say most, many of us are walking around with the assumption that because we're doing nice things, we're making these deposits, but they're not actually deposits, it's us throwing nickels on the ground and thinking that we've deposited in people's lives, and then we wanna go on and correct other people and we get upset why no one wants to be our friend. I got news for you, you're mean. <laughs> you're not nice. You're not making deposits. You're going around like some kind of 
inspector at a restaurant grading what you find in people's, and you, like, no one looks at you as, 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 as a person who genuinely is invested in their life. They're looking at you as like, ugh, they don't really love me. They just like being right. And so sometimes discernment looks like saying something, but sometimes discernment looks like not saying things. And the other reason why sometimes discernment looks like not saying things is because sometimes, not, you might not have enough emotional credibility in your bank, but, but sometimes the person isn't teachable. They're not at the place where they want to hear it. And it doesn't matter how many nice ways you say it, they're not ever going to hear it because they don't want to hear it. Matthew, Jesus says uh, in Matthew 7, 6, not to cast your pearls before swine. And that's a weird parable that doesn't really make sense unless you frame it in the context of relationships and people. Now he's saying it in the context of judgment, but he's talking about the relationship between two people and how you're supposed to be looking at one another and how you're supposed to be examining one another. At the end, he says, don't cast your pearls before swine. What he's essentially saying is that there are things in your life that you treasure like pearls, that you value, that are important to you. And you gotta be careful who you share those with because if those things that are important to you, you share them with someone who doesn't value the same things that you value, it's no different than casting your pearls before, before swine and the, they're just gonna get trampled on. Now, I'm not in favor of calling people swine, but have you met some people online? Not everyone's real nice. And so what Jesus is trying to get us to remind, trying to remind us is that th- there are some things that are important to you, moments in your spiritual walk I remember going to uh, summer camp and just having my life being radically changed the summer that I got saved. And I remember coming back and going into school and some of the people were like, hey, how was your summer? And it was just like, what do I say? Because there's some people that I'm gonna share what happened to me this summer and they're just gonna, they're just gonna get lit up. They're gonna, they're gonna start running laps and popping their tambourines. <laughs> they're gonna get excited. They're, they love Jesus, they, they are pumped. What happened? I wanna know what Jesus is doing in your life. And there are some people, that just, they don't care. What, what, did, what happened this summer? They're not asking because they care, they're asking as just a, a flippant way of saying hello. I'm not gonna share these things that are most treasure, treasured with me to somebody who, who through discernment, I discern that you're, you don't care, you're not gonna treasure them. In fact, what's probably gonna happen is you're gonna turn on my head and tell me how all that stuff was just make-believe in my head and you're, you're gonna trample on my pearls. And I don't want people trampling on my pearls. <laughs> Discernment shows us. <laughs> Discernment shows us the difference between right and wrong, and it shows us how to respond to it. Now, Paul lays out in 1 Corinthians 12 that there is a spiritual gift of discerning. That's not what I'm talking about. There's a spiritual gift that some people have and some people don't that helps them discern between spirits in a, in a spiritual sense. Good, evil, angels, demons. That's a spiritual gift. Not everybody has that. But there is this concept in Hebrews 5, 11 through 14 that I'm talking about in the sense of discernment as a virtue that is constantly growing because of a steady diet of meat. We've got some time. Do you have, if your Bibles, go to go over Hebrews 11 real quick. Sorry, not Hebrews 11, Hebrews 5. Go to Hebrews 5, 11. We don't have this up on screen, so don't, don't fret it. 
So the writer of Hebrews is writing to a church and he's explaining to them how Jesus is a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now that's a whole nother sermon series. I won't go into that, but he's talking about the connection of the Old Testament prophecies in relation to Jesus and how that should be fundamental for Hebrews. A Jewish person should have gotten that, but they didn't. And he says in verse 11, he says this, we have much to say and it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you, Hebrews, you should be teaching other people. You should be teaching all the Gentiles about how the marvelous way that God has been telling his story for 2,000 years. But you can't because you need someone to teach you, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child, but solid food is for the mature. For those, watch this, who have their powers of discernment trained, how? By constant practice to distinguish good from evil. That's good, we should do a sermon series on Hebrews next year. The constant practice of discerning good from evil, the constant practice of examining the things around you in this world and holding them up against the word of God to see what holds weight and then making the decision through discernment on what should be talked about and said about what you find and what should be hidden in your heart and taken to the place of prayer. Amen? A lot of the stuff that you find should stay in the place of prayer. It doesn't because you don't really believe prayer works. You think you work. And when you find something and you wanna say something, you want to say something because you're convinced that in saying something, you can make a change. But your instinct isn't to go to your father in prayer because you don't think that he'll give you the answer that you want to hear and you don't really think that that works. And I find this in conversations when I talk with people. Like, hey, what's going on with you? Oh, things are going really bad with this person over here, these things over here. But I'm praying about it. I guess all I can do is pray. No. No, that's not the, man, that's not the only thing. That is the thing you can do. Yeah, congratulations that you have finally come to your weakness. You, you've come to the place where literally you can't do anything else. You finally got it through your thick skull that you don't have any capacity or skill and you brought it to the heavenly father who has all the capacity and skill. Congratulations that you finally realized that you can pray about this. Man, if we started changing the way that we saw one another or how we handled issues, the first place we run to is prayer. And the second place we run to is one another because what we want is not to say things out of our own heart, we wanna say things out of his heart. So before, if I discern upon looking at the word of God in this person's life, there's some things we gotta talk about. Before I even have that conversation, the first thing I do is I'm praying about it because Lord, I need words. I don't wanna crush my friend. I need words, I need you to tell me how to say this. Prayer is always the first, it's not the last. And if it's the only, congratulations, it's the first. There's just one thing on your list. That's how we see prayer. Now he closes this letter, verse 12. He says, Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself, we also add our testimony and you know that our testimony is true. So he's adding on top of this another good example within the church to examine. So now we got Gaius and Demetrius. We got two to one good examples within the church. Sometimes that's how it always feels. 
I've had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with a pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. So greet the friends each by name. So he closes the letter and expresses a desire to see him. And that is essentially the end of our message series. I, wanted, I felt led to go through this message series because love and discernment are two virtues that we desperately need right now. We need them going into the book of Revelation, which is what we're gonna start next week. But we need them for operating as a people of God in the world that we live in today. We, we need these, we need love and we need discernment as a church. And we need these things because they're supposed to guide our interactions and they're supposed to filter stuff in our heart. Because love helps us understand how we interact with one another, but discernment helps you know what you let in and what you don't let in. And a lot of us have been letting stuff in here that doesn't need to be in there. Because you you're not sharpened in discernment. You're not currently practicing knowing the difference between good and evil. You're just grabbing all the evil because you want to call it good. You're redefining these things and you're, redef you're, you're, you're swapping out the commands and you're, like Isaiah said, you're, you're calling evil good and good evil. Let's flip the table on all of these things that we historically have all said. This is what God told us. This is what we're going to do. And so you you're not sharpened on discernment and things are being let in that don't need to be in there. So what we need to do, like Hebrews 5 encourages us, we need to start becoming masters of discernment. We need to start mastering these virtues of love. And the reason why it's so important is because it affects not just you, but it affects the generation behind you. Whether you have kids or not, if you're in a local church, you have a responsibility to raise up the next generation, just simply by being there and living out a Christ walk before the young people. Because young people, you th here's what you think, old folks, you think that no one cares about you, no one's looking at you, no one even knows you're there, and I'm telling you, um, you have believed a lie from the enemy. Satan's lying to you and you're believing it. If you're sitting here like, man, my, my better days are behind me, he's lying to you and you're believing it. There are uh, just, just a small microcosm of my family. We sit, when, when we sit around the table at dinner time, and when we talk, 80% of our conversations are about church and people within the church. We talk about you guys all the time. And you're like, really? Yes, really. Because I want as a pastor to shepherd my kids in a way where I want them to constantly see, hey, hey, you see how, man, isn't it such a blessing that this guy's like always serving over here? Because what it does inside of them is it reminds them, oh man, my dad, he affirms that as a good thing. My heavenly father affirms that as a good thing. Therefore, like, I want my heavenly father to affirm me. And so, so I want to do the things he, so I, he's given me gifts I want to serve too. I want to I get under that faucet. I, I want to be a part of that. And so th through those conversations and, and talking about you guys at home, the purpose of that is to reinforce that we are all connected to something and you're not standing on your own out there. And so I say that because you, you might say, well, I don't have kids and this doesn't really apply to me. False, another lie that you've purchased and believed by the enemy. This absolutely does uh, have a, you have a part to play in this. If you've got kids, if you don't have kids, it doesn't matter. All of us have a responsibility to grow in love and discernment because we have to train our kids how to love and discern. Because here's the catch. If you don't, some college will. 
If you don't, some YouTube channel will. Some guidance counselor will. Some boss at some job will. Somebody out there would love to teach your kids how to love and how to discern. And so there is a heavy responsibility on us to make sure that we frame our kids' understanding of what it looks like to follow the word of God. I'm gonna wrap up here, but I just wanna say this one last thing about discernment. There's kind of a, there's a scary trend that I see operating within the church that I just wanna just, I just wanna push real quick and then like run away, okay? So it's, so it's gonna set off a bomb, but I do need to like, I need to press it, okay? I'm, I'm, I'm noticing a very scary trend uh, within the people of God where we are, um, we're getting to a place where we are putting more and more and more credibility and what people who we don't know say about things that we believe and that we know. Here's what I mean. You'll watch a YouTube video by a guy who gets paid by how many people watch his video. So inherently in that entire power structure, there is an incentive to be more inflammatory than he normally would be in real life to start telling you about things he has heard about other pastors or other street preachers or other churches. And without doing any investigation, we just say, well, if he said it, it's true. End game. And what it's doing within the body of Christ is it's slowly removing fingers and arms and legs the church is the body of Christ, and what the enemy wants to do through false discernment by you watching a video and just believing the first thing you hear about something is it's systematically amputating parts of the body of Christ because you refuse to listen to this guy because you heard something about what this person said. You follow me? I want all of us to get to a place where we are so robust in our theology and so close in our walk with Jesus where you're not afraid to read or listen to something that you know that you'll initially disagree with. Did you hear me? You can't be afraid. Here's one valid reason why. Because unless you know the arguments that the other side are framing, how can you ever have an intelligent conversation with somebody who holds those views if you just like, la, 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 la. I only listen to what Pastor Marshall says. I won't listen to anything else. That's dumb. Don't do that. Don't only listen to me. Read books, but get so good at discernment that in the middle of the reading, you're like, man, that's good, that's good, that's good. Yeah, uh, I don't believe that. That's out there. Good, 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 not good. It's important for us as a people of God to be able to get to a place where we know what the word of God says. We know how to respond to it or not respond to it, but that only comes by a diligent practice of discerning good and evil. And you've got to discern good and evil by knowing the word and using that as a comparison with everything that you consume. Stop sticking your head in a hole and stop acting like everybody online has a better perspective than you. You are smart, you are brilliant, you are wise. You can know the word of God, you just haven't tried. So stop letting everyone do the hard work for you. That's lazy. Get in your word and start developing 
the discernment between good and evil. Amen? I told you, and now I'm gonna run away. All right, let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.